Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 56 for the first half of December 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is Photography Claims of the Apollo Moon Hoax, Part 3. In Part 1, which was episode 31, I addressed several of the claims about how the photographs were taken, as opposed to alleged anomalies within the photographs themselves. In Part 2, which was episode 35, I addressed some of the features that were in the photos themselves that people point to to say that the Apollo landings were faked. This episode is the miscellaneous one, with a few other main claims that people make that are somewhat related to photography about the Apollo landings. First up, why can't we image from Earth? One claim that I often hear, and in fact still see today in 2012, is that if the Apollo landings on the moon were real, then why can't we point a telescope on Earth to them and see them? After all, Hubble can see billions of light years away. Surely it can see something on the moon. The problem with this is a false major premise, that light gathering power is equivalent to angular resolution. Hubble and many other multi-meter-sized telescopes can gather a lot of light. That's what a telescope is. It's basically a big bucket for light. This means that they can see what otherwise would be very faint and unobservable objects. This is very different from saying that they can see objects that appear very small from Earth, or have a small angular size. Think of it this way. Our nearest star is the Sun. Within a radius of just you know, 10, 15, 20 light years of the sun, our galactic very, very nearby neighborhood, there are several other stars, but even Hubble can't resolve them into a disk. It can only see them as one pixel on the detector, or rather a group of smeared pixels due to various properties of optics that I'll get a little bit into in about a minute or so. In other words, these are objects that are visible to the naked eye. They're really, really bright but even our best telescopes can't see them as anything other than a single point. And yes, before I get angry emails, there are a few stars that we can resolve, like Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse, because it's very, 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 very big star. But stars nearby are not nearly as big as these giant ones that we can't resolve. The point here is that brightness relates to the ability for good telescopes to view those objects that are faint, and has nothing to do with their ability to pick out tiny details. That's the case with the Apollo landers. There is a fundamental property of optics that light passing through an optical system will be spread out in what's called the point spread function. This is why even a perfectly focused telescope will still show the star as a disk, even though the true resolving ability is that less than a pixel would be covered by the star. The point spread function is actually not only a disk, but it has very faint rings around it that are called an airy pattern, A-I-R-Y, named after a guy called George Bedal Airy, who discovered this in the early 1800s. From the airy pattern, Lord Rayleigh, a few decades later, codified what is now called the Rayleigh or Rayleigh Criterion for Optical Systems, where the ability to separate two points in any optical system is when the center part of their airy disks don't overlap. To figure out what this is, he used Bessel functions, 
named after a guy named Bessel, conveniently, and he solved the Airy function to come up with a very simple formula that we still teach today in introductory physics. This formula states that the angular size of what can be resolved, or the angular separation between two objects to be resolved, is a function of the color of light you're using and the diameter of your optical system. You can then fairly easily use this to figure out if any of the Apollo relics are resolvable in any optical system from Earth. The answer is that they're not. For green light, for example, Hubble can only resolve something about 370 meters across on the moon, much larger than any Apollo relic. The largest optical telescope on Earth, the Keck 10-meter telescopes in Hawaii, can resolve objects about four times smaller than Hubble in green light under ideal circumstances, but that's still over ten times too large to resolve anything left by the Apollo astronauts. So from this analysis, it's really basic physics that shows why this particular claim of the Apollo moon hoax is wrong. The next claim is that lens flares were present in the Apollo photos when they shouldn't be, because they were using the best possible lenses at the time. Now this is a claim that I actually rarely see, but it's out there so I'll briefly address it, and I do mean very briefly. It's based on a fundamental lack of understanding that better and best does not mean perfect and ignores basic optics laws. A good camera lens will be clear, will have little coma, little chromatic aberration, it'll have good focus across a wide range of apertures, it'll have even illumination across the field of view, and various other properties. This is why good camera lenses are expensive. But I don't care how good your camera lens is, nor what it's coated with, and I have some camera lenses that run over $2,000, and I've used camera lenses over $10,000. If you point your camera lens close to a bright light source like the sun, you're going to get lens flares. The flares are caused by internal reflections within the lens itself, and while good lenses will minimize these, if you point to the sun, you're going to get them. The third claim for this episode is that the backgrounds in some photos aren't right. The lunar module changes size, but the mountains don't, proving that the lunar module was moved around a movie set, as required for good shots, but they use the same background for different locations. Now this is an issue with forced perspective. What the hoax proponents say actually is possible, and it's not based on a misunderstanding this time, which honestly is quite rare. The phenomenon can easily be duplicated on a set on Earth, but that doesn't mean that it disproves the moon landings, because it's also what happens on the moon. On Earth, we have air, which is a good thing, because it means we can live. But air has a certain extinction factor and haziness, meaning that if an object is far away, it'll look washed out. If it's really far away, it'll look even more washed out. But if an object is really close, it looks clear and distinct, and the colors are saturated, assuming it has color to it. For those who are not visually challenged, our brains are trained from a very early age to recognize this effect and to use it to judge, if not absolute distances, then relative distances. I was just driving into Boulder yesterday, and as I looked ahead of me, I saw a range of mountains. I was able to tell which mountains were farther away than others because they looked more hazy. Even a mountain peak just a few miles or kilometers away from you on Earth will have a little bit of this effect. 
and that fails completely on the moon because there is no atmosphere to speak of. This means that a lunar module or a rock that's just a few meters away is going to look just as clear and distinct as a mountain range a hundred kilometers or miles away. You have no way to judge distance from an atmospheric extinction, and because it all looks clear, it all looks, to your eye, fairly close up. So now, if you move, say, double the original distance from the lunar module or rock, the lunar module or the rock is going to look substantially smaller to you, and it'll probably move in its location. But that 10 meter extra distance when added to a mountain peak 100 kilometers away is practically nothing. So the nearby objects will appear to change size and position relative to the background, but the background will stay almost exactly the same. The fourth claim is who took the video of Neil Armstrong descending onto the moon, and who took the video of the lunar modules lifting off the moon. This is a claim that, when you first hear it, makes you think, yeah, who did film Neil Armstrong descending the lunar module, and who did film the lunar module taking off again? And I'm sure that you would use those exact words. But then, if you do any actual thinking about it, you should realize, well, duh, people at NASA knew that they were going to want to tape it, so they would have mounted a camera onto the side of the lunar module that could be triggered remotely to start recording. And that's what happened. Armstrong had a string that he pulled once he was near the lunar module door, and when he exited, that string had deployed an arm with a TV camera, and that's what filmed him walking down the module onto the lunar surface. To not have this in place would have been questionable and perhaps led to conspiracies, of the kind where they go, well, gee, why didn't we see them descending from the lunar module onto the lunar surface? I mean, this is a big historic point. Someone should have had a camera mounted to record it. The fact that they didn't means that it's a conspiracy and it was done on a soundstage. The fact that they did just shows that someone put a few moments of thought into this issue. As for the lunar module taking off, there is no footage for Apollos 11, 12, or 14. Apollos 15, 16, and 17 all had a lunar rover, and on that lunar rover there was a camera that could be remotely controlled from Earth. In fact, operators at Earth forgot a bit about the two-second light time travel delay, and they almost missed the takeoff of Apollo 15 entirely. They did better with Apollo 16 and got it almost perfect for Apollo 17. These days, if you see a shot of the lunar module taking off from the moon, it's most likely from Apollo 17 from the lunar rover mounted camera. So this particular conspiracy claim may seem to, you know, as with others, make sense if you don't think about them. But as soon as you start to actually think, they have an obvious common sense solution that likely you would have thought of on your own if you're at NASA planning these. The next claim is that the American flag is always lit regardless of what side you're photographing it from. This, as with most other conspiracy claims related to the Apollo landings, at first again makes sense. After all, if there was just one light source, then how can an object appear to be lit up regardless of whether you're in front of or behind it? There must have been a second light source, proving they were on a movie set. The solution comes from the material. The flags are made of nylon. Nylon flags are translucent, meaning that they let some light through. For example, 
take a non-brand dependent facial tissue and look at it in a room with a single light source. It'll be lit up. Now hold it up to the light source so that that non-brand facial tissue is between you and the light source. The tissue will still appear to be lit. That's why the flag appears lit. It's really that simple. The next claim, the penultimate claim for this episode, is the perennial, where are the Fakakta stars? Surprisingly, I'm not going to go into too much detail with this one, and that's because I've covered it before in numerous ways in other episodes. I refer back to episode 35 on the crosshairs in the Apollo photos, as well as the two-part episodes 47 and 48 on image processing. The basic reason is two words, dynamic range. Dynamic range is the measure of how many shades of brightness can be in something. In an image, it's dark to light. How many shades of brightness do you have? The Apollo astronauts took photographs that were properly exposed for daytime on the moon to take photographs of themselves and their surroundings. They were not nearly long enough to capture any stars other than the sun in the film. Yes, I know the sky is black, therefore it must be night, so there must be stars, right? Wrong. With no atmosphere on the moon to scatter light to make the sky a certain color, the sky on the moon looks black, regardless of what time of day it is, because there is, in a manner of speaking, no sky to be seen at all. And no, it's also not because the folks at NASA were afraid that if they put stars on the black backdrops that someone would figure out that the stars were in the wrong place and call them on the hoax. The moon might be 386,000 kilometers away, but relative to the stars, that's bupkis. Nothing. The stars would be in the exact same position, at least to the precision of a wide-field camera photo, as they appear on Earth. That's not to say that there are no stars in some Apollo photos. There was ultraviolet photography in later missions, specifically to photograph stars and other objects with longer exposures, and they did, but that's a future episode. The final claim for this episode is the infamous sea rock. Why is there a rock in photo AS16-107-17446 that clearly, in some prints, shows a large capital letter C? Clearly, the prop guy got sloppy, or the prop guy wanted to leak that it's a hoax. Even Richard Hoagland and Mike Barra have debunked this claim which is really saying something considering that Hoagland is among the kings of pareidolia and anomaly hunting. There are many, many ways to go about showing why this is a fairly ridiculous claim. I'm going to tell you three, and as far as I know, the last one is actually original to me, but I am sure that someone probably thought of it before now. The first way is going back to the idea of, well, let's say this really was done on a soundstage. Does anyone actually label individual props, especially the hundreds of rocks that are in the Apollo scenes? I mean, seriously, anyone? No. Props, especially similar ones numbering in the dozens to hundreds, like rocks, are not labeled for movie sets. The second, and the actual explanation for what happened, is that this is just a hair that got trapped between the print that someone was copying and the image device they were using to copy it. If you go back to earlier generation prints, the C was not there. The third is to look at the photograph immediately before this, AS16-107-17445. It shows half of the same scene, including the C-Rock, 
but the sea rock is not there. It has to be there. If it was in Apollo photo AS16107-17446 and a real feature as opposed to a hair that got stuck in the print. I have not exactly a new news item, because it's not new science related to a previous topic, but the Skeptoid podcast run by Brian Dunning just put out a Flat Earth Theory as episode 338. He doesn't go too much into showing why Earth is actually spherical, but it's a pretty good episode on the history of the idea, which is something that I didn't really go into in my episode on the topic. This episode's question for Q&A comes from Chris S. from Across the Pond, who asks, If a comet flew by close enough to Earth, would the tail of the comet fall down to Earth and create rain, and possibly even a great flood? I'm sure you know what I'm hinting at. The answer to Chris is both yes and then no. Comets do have tails that can stretch tens of millions of kilometers long. Yes, that is on the scale of how far the planet Mercury is from the Sun. Really really long. And Earth can pass by and through those tails. In fact, it happened with Halley's Comet back in 1910, and people were afraid buying gas masks because we had, for the first time, detected some poisonous gases in the tail, and we were going to pass through them. But comet tails are incredibly thin, and the particles are incredibly tiny. Practically all will burn up in the atmosphere, and while you make it a meteor shower, you're not going to get an actual rain shower. For you to really get something like rain and have a great giant flood of the type that I think you're hinting at, Noah's flood from the Judeo-Christian Bible, you'd have to have something like a large comet actually hitting Earth, and parts of the comet being incorporated into the debris cloud and after vaporizing condense back out and fall as rain. In other words, you need to have something large enough to survive passage through Earth's atmosphere or at least through most of Earth's atmosphere, and either impact and have the debris rain out, or disintegrate in the atmosphere enough to not land as chunks, but somehow as rain. I'm not quite sure if the latter scenario could actually happen, though. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, although the easiest is to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. There are two items of feedback for this episode. I remember many, many episodes past of Astronomy Cast, a podcast that discusses basic astronomy and physics concepts and has a very large, over 250 episode back catalog. The two hosts mentioned that there were some people who had shared their podcast on various file sharing websites, such as the Pirate Bay. The question to them by some of the listeners was if that was okay. Similarly, I've been told by a few certain individuals that this podcast has been shared on these sites, either as a large file with the episodes incorporated, or incorporated into monthly coast-to-coast AM downloads, which I find fairly humorous. The question to me was, why hadn't I done that? Well, first off, since I absolutely have never ever heard of these illicit file-sharing websites, that's why. But more to the point... I'm sure that there are innumerable ways that I have not pursued or even thought to pursue or have just put off pursuing to market and distribute this podcast. That's why I have you. For those who listen to the maybe one to two minute outro, 
I do ask for help distributing the podcast. I've gone lately from share this with your friends and family to tell some random person you know on the internet but have never met in person about the podcast. The same goes for distribution as well. If any of you have ideas on places that this could be listed, go ahead and do it with my thanks. The second bit of feedback for this episode is long, but I'm going to read most of it. It comes from a person calling themselves Qubit, Q-U-B-I-T, on my blog, who posted this in two parts in the comments section for the announcement post about episode 21, the geographic pole shift idea presented mainly by Brent Miller. If you recall, he was very much a doom and gloom person who claimed that within the first 24 hours of the pole flip that would happen on December 21st of this year, 2012, over one-third of humanity, yes, over two billion people, would die. So this person, Qubit, wrote, quote, Debunking has become an awful skill, I must say. On one side, mainstreamers love to debunk theories people come up with, which are interesting, full of imagination, and probably not likely to be true, just like a creationist will debunk Darwinism. Quote, it's a theory. He said it was just a theory. Ha ha. End quote. I don't see anything wrong with Miller's theories. I mean, come on. The Big Bang Theory has more holes in imagination than his theories. Besides, he's not doing any harm in trying to explain what could happen. If people go ape on it and take him for real, that's their story. Now let's talk about AGW, that's Anthropogenic Global Warming, where we got politics and true scientists talking fear-mongering science as if it's fact and slaughtering people who try to disprove their facts. What's going on in the world of science? How is it that scientists can't debunk a mainstream idea and a mainstreamer can debunk a non-mainstream idea with no blowback? Let the truth be told. Mainstream-slash-political theories dished out as fact are not allowed to be debunked. Debunkers on a crusade are just subconscious slaves of the new atheism faith. We know nothing about the universe. We know nothing about the sun. We know nothing about the solar system, the earth, the supermassive black hole in the Milky Way, or even what why consciousness is reality. We know nothing about the smallest of the small or the largest of the large. We know enough to have technology, mostly thanks to Einstein and Tesla. We know nothing about God, or if there is a God. We cannot say for sure DNA started on Earth, or if it started in the fashion of Darwinism, or if the universe just spawns DNA where it is spawnable. We theories, we have beautiful mathematics, we have guesses, we have some empiral facts, but honestly, a true atheist would agree that we, mankind, don't know expletive. And if all of the crusade debunkers could just put their time and effort into ancient knowledge and mathematics of today and put some imagination into things, we would slash might be better off with the little knowledge we have. To the author of this post, that would be me, instead of being a Google monkey on debunking theories from people that are smaller than the small in the areas of science, put your Google skills into presenting the questions of the universe with your own ideas and hope a debunking monkey doesn't find your site and smear you. End quote. I did not actually respond to Qubit, although I have no problem with people posting that kind of stuff on my blog in the comments section. I will mention two quick things before getting to the bigger issue, though. First, I may or may not be an atheist. 
That has absolutely no bearing on the science that I discuss. I try to stay out of those kinds of social or religious or even political issues on this podcast because they're generally irrelevant. I do find it interesting that Cubit somehow read into it that I'm an atheist, though. Second, I welcome people bringing forward clear, easily explained, and demonstrated reasons for things that I've gotten wrong, preferably referenced as well. I have made corrections to past episodes, announced in the feedback of future ones. I'm sure I'll get things wrong in other episodes, and I may have gotten something wrong in this one. So to Cubit, I say, bring it on. And now we get to the bigger picture. I was very recently, as in earlier today, introduced to a page on Rational Wiki entitled Not Even Wrong. To quote, quote, Not even wrong refers to any statement, argument, or explanation that can neither be correct nor incorrect because it fails to meet the criteria by which correctness and incorrectness can be determined. The phrase implies that not only is someone not making a valid point in the discussion, but they don't even understand the nature of the discussion itself, or the things that need to be understood in order to participate. End quote. That's really the case here, especially that last clause. There comes a point in some arguments where a person says something that is just so incredibly wrong that they clearly lack the basic understanding to even start to argue against them. In fact, I have tried to tackle a few of those in this podcast and on my blog. Richard Hoagland, John Lear, Nancy Leader, Greg Braden. Those are just a few of the ones that I've tried to tackle. They've built up an entire mythos that is so not even wrong that it's hard to know where to start to show that it is. I've tried to do so by picking at certain threads of their claims. The color of Venus, uh, planet X, the magical 9.5 degrees. In the future, I'll be doing a Nancy Leader clip show, a Face on Mars episode, and a True Color of Mars episode. These will further pick at threads by these people, as well as others. As I said, I have no issues letting these kinds of comments through in general, but I'm not going to respond to them because there's simply no place to start to address them. And, speaking of addressing things, that means that it's time for the puzzler, where I attempt to ask each episode a supposedly critical thinking-based question, loosely based upon the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time was this. If we were to design a mission to another planet today, what type of mission, lander or orbiter, and what instruments would be best to make what kinds of measurements to try to detect microorganism life, assuming it's life as we know it? Put another way, you are put in charge of planning a mission to search for life. What kind of mission would it be, what kind of measurements would you need to make, and what kind of instruments would you need? Congratulations goes to Warwick from the Land Down Under for being the first, and only, to send in a possible mission scenario. Though he cheated a bit, because he'd already written this for a class two years ago. That's okay, one can always reuse previous work if it's relevant. His solution was interesting, if expensive. It's a three-rover solution with the two main ones tethered to a smaller one that could then move around and lower into interesting places like caves or over cliffs. The instrument package included a microscope similar to the Beagle Lander, the ChemCam instrument on Curiosity Rover, a gas analysis package similar to Beagle's, and three other instruments to detect specific chemistries related to life as we know it. 
and specifically to rule out false positives from one of the instruments by experiments from the other ones. Overall, if funded and successful, it does seem like a package that would be capable of answering the question, at least in the locations that it ended up exploring. This episode, with the main segment on more Apollo moon hoax claims, the puzzler is another exploratory question with no right nor wrong answer. That means that I expect 1,000 or so emails with everyone participating. That means you. The question is, if you were approached by a rational Apollo moon hoax proponent, as in someone who's willing to listen to reason, what do you think is the most convincing piece of evidence that the landings were real? I ask this ahead of the future episode, or three, on independent evidence that we did land on the moon. Think of a line of evidence, send it in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I will discuss the responses during the next episode. And that episode will very likely be about something from the sun killing us on December 21st, 2012. Yeah, gotta get it in before the end of the year. So if you have ideas for a puzzler topic on that, please send it in. There's one announcement this episode, although it is a little bit early to say for absolute certainty that we're not all going to die this December 21st, I'm starting to look for backpedaling by Doomsday proponents for a follow-up episode very early next year. If anyone listening to this podcast happens to come across something by anyone who claimed stuff like Planet X would cause a pole flip or a big solar storm would wipe us out, or even stuff on the positive side, for example, uh, David Wilcock back in 2004 claimed that right after December 21st, 2012, we'll all be able to have instant healing and be able to fly and other stuff. If you come up with anyone trying to backpedal on those claims that they made, please send them in to podcast at sjrdesign.net. And with this music, I the wrap up this topic on the 56th edition of the Exposing Pseudoastronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time, and put up with my scratchy voice because I've been sick for last week. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use one, the feedback form on the website, two, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, three, leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, four, leave a comment on my blog post for this episode, five, leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast, or six, send me a tweet, at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, even if I don't respond. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes. If you liked it, tell some random internet person that you've never met, or even two or three or four or five of them. Post it to a forum. Do something cool. Thanks. Bye.